This is Discussions on the Firewater Network, where we talk to those crafting the future of the spirits industry. And now, here's your host. This is Zachary Farley. Today, I'm speaking with Davrin Kuchan of the Old World Spirits Distillery in Belmont, California, in the San Francisco Bay Area. So, Davrin, tell me about your distillery. Where are we? What are you building here at Old World Spirits? Good morning, Zach. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to share our story. So, we're in Belmont, California. Old World Spirits is my little startup. We're in the Bay Area, and Old World Spirits is an ultra-premium artisanal distillery. So I'm a third-generation winemaker and distiller. My family has done this for generations. We focus on ultra-premium spirits, have a portfolio of products ranging from gin, barrel-aged gin, to eau de vies, uh, absinthe, and some more artisanal spirits. Very cool. I can't wait to really dive into that and find Excellent. out everything you make. Yeah, this isn't the usual kind of startup that one thinks about in the Bay Area right now. You're very much the kind of the oldest manufactured product on some level versus the cutting edge, bleeding edge of production. Yeah, it's in the spirit of Silicon Valley, though. You yeah, know, it's a, it's us. We're all about creation and coming mm-hmm. up with new exciting things. <laughs> so, as you mentioned, your family has been in winemaking for three generations. Why enter distilling? What made you kind of want to get involved with the spirits world? Yeah, so I was born in Croatia, came to California in 1985, and I grew up around my family's vineyards just north of Zagreb in Croatia. And, you know, growing up as a kid, I was a seven-year-old kid running through our family vineyards and uh, picking up grapes and uh, picking up the Indian blood peaches growing in our vineyards. And it was always fun times. It was always family time. It was friends and family getting together, working in the vineyards, making a barbecue, eventually breaking into a song, you know, bringing accordions out. (laughs) And so I always associated uh, that with the fun things in life. Always, it was fun, it was good food, good music, people sharing good times together. So that always brought something special to me. And grapes were great, but what I found really exciting as a young boy was this golden copper thing that, you know, that was warm and it smelled really good. And uh, <laughs> I was producing this magical liquid that I would, uh, I would occasionally sneak a few, few drops of, yeah. uh, you know, eventually running more in the vineyards. <laughs> 14% is great, but 40% is a little yeah, bit. Uh, yeah, even, even higher than that. It's yeah. not proofs coming out of us still. So right. uh, I showed you earlier the picture where it was a 200 year old family slip of its copper. Still, pot still. So those were sort of the magical times that I enjoyed around the distilling. Oh, very cool. So how did you learn about distilling? How did you learn to distill then? Was it something you picked up from your family from that little sliver of it still? Uh, Did you? Yeah, you know, you grew up around it, right? So in fact, when your kids, you know, the kids get a fun job of cleaning the still and uh, you get all the dirty work, you know, pick up the pomace, put it in a still, clean the still, you know, you get a little money on the side. Sure. We were winemakers and there was some distilling, but uh, it was one of our family friends, uh, Piola, who was uh, was just a passionate distiller. I really connected with him and he really took me under his wing and taught me some of the essentials, the old school of distilling and fermentation and barrel aging. So it was really just a family and, and friends originally. Later on, I did some professional distilling training at Michigan State. So there was sort of some formal training and obviously a lot of learning along the way. Uh, Absolutely. One of the really interesting things about distilling is that you go from the, you know, you're not proofing it coming off of your little family still in Croatia, and now you come here and you have an amazing, modern, beautiful still in the back. But the science is all the same. Ultimately, the process, sure, the scale is a little bit larger. Um, I'm sure Michigan State taught you some of the finer things, but really, it's all the same thing on some level. 
I just think that's so fascinating about this is that you can take something that you've learned from so long ago on such a small thing and get started here with it. You're absolutely right, Zach. The principles are the same, but distilling is a very simple science, right? And that simplicity is what makes it very difficult because the subtle nuances just make it very difficult to scale. So what sure. works on a small pot still does not necessarily produce the same results in a much larger setup with a, you know, the still that I design yes. is completely different. Even though the basic principle of distilling is the same, but right. it's very different making a single bowl of soup versus making a vat for, you know, <laughs> hundreds of soldiers, you know, in a field. Yeah, you, know, you can't just say, okay, it worked on 10 gallons, now let's just 10x all the ingredients. and uh, Yeah, <laughs> the scaling, the scaling is, not, it's not linear. It's, right. you know, there's, there's changes along the way. Yeah. <laughs> Your professional background is in Silicon Valley with high-tech startups. What was it like going from the cutting edge of technology to an older industry like distilling? You know, you currently still work a little bit in the high-tech field. What is it like straddling that line? Business is business, right? So in, in some ways, creating the products and creating brands, whether you're making shoes, whether you're making distilled spirits, software apps, it's somewhat similar, right? Mm -hmm. The technical creation of the product is technology, it's science meets art, meets process. It's very similar to whether you're building next generation digital camera or recording equipment or software applications. It was very similar. I was building startups before. So in some ways, I thought, how difficult could it be, right? Okay. Uh, I do have sort of a technology background from the spirit side, but I didn't know really much about the business side of the industry itself. So the two key things, I'm happy to talk about it in more detail, but two key things that were new is I realized that being in the spirits world, it's consumer product, it's consumer branding. So if you don't have a lot of experience with consumer branding, it's fascinating to learn about how people adopt brands and how they support brands. Mm -hmm. So a lot of learning on that. And the second part is just the legislature and, and the entitlement and the business side of things, which is significantly more complicated in the spirits world. Yeah, that was uh, going to be my next question. I would imagine in the software world, it's all very much whatever you can imagine, whatever you can code you can go out and do and build. The spirits world is not like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, not quite. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hello, welcome to regulations. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All the regulations are right yeah. here on that. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess what was kind of for you your biggest hurdle in just getting started? It's a startup. You're really excited. You want to go and make ultra premium brands. You have startup experience in the past. Let's get running 100 miles per hour. Eh, what's that first hurdle that you hit? It wasn't just one, Zach. It was a lot of hurdles. But part of the naivete, it was a blessing because you sort of hit those hurdles one at a time. If you knew what all the hurdles were going to be ahead, mm -hmm. I'm not sure I would have done it. But you sort of hit them one at a time. You kind of solve the problem as you go along. One of the issue was just equipment. You can't just go to a store and buy the equipment, right? Most of the equipment mm -hmm. is custom made. There's a reason why it's called DSP, P for plant, right? Mm. It's a distilled spirits plant. It's an industrial setup where a lot of the equipment is custom made. A lot of processes are custom made. Yeah. And uh, they're set up for the products, for the space, for the environment. So a lot of custom. And unlike breweries and wineries, there's just not that many people out there who know how to build spirits plants. Sure. Not to mention that these things are flammable and explosive <laughs> and, you right. know, can kill you. So if you don't know what you're doing, if you've never done it before, it's very difficult to find the talent and help and consultants who are actually going to. And if you do find them, they're going to be very expensive. Sure. I mean, that's a really key point. Distilling is a high hazard zoned operation. It's just the way government looks at it, and it's for a good reason. <laughs> you are dealing with flames, even if it's not open, you know, in a boiler, but you are releasing flammable materials if you're not careful. Did that kind of inform your location here in Belmont? We're kind of in a light industrial area. 
Was it difficult finding the right location to open up a distillery, something that the local zoning boards would allow with enough space for you to be able to operate a DSP? Yeah, I think this is the third location we try to get entitled in. Oh, really? Typically, wine producers, which is probably the closest to our friends in the industry, and, and even breweries, in order to have a distillery, you need a light industrial zoning, right? And I live here on a peninsula. You know, I live in Palo Alto, so I couldn't quite go to Fresno because right. it just becomes very difficult and impractical. Mm -hmm. um, so if you want to be within reasonable space, I mean, we're in the heart of Silicon Valley competing with Facebook, Google, LinkedIn for space. I imagine that puts the price per square foot for any kind of space. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's a high premium. So uh, potential is not getting any bigger. <laughs> so. Well, there's nowhere to grow, yeah, exactly. Right. So there's not like large and used uh, fields where you can just mm -hmm. pop a barn, you know? Yeah. Uh, I wish I could. So the space is at premium, so you have to make a lot of compromises for that space. And also zoning in a lot of cities simply just want to have hotels and office buildings and car dealerships. And once they see the picture of this beautiful 12-foot thing that looks like something out of uh, Jules Verne, you know, mm -hmm. they just go, wow, what is this? What is that? What kind of regulations could we throw on that thing? <laughs> yeah. And uh, so it's very difficult to find a space that you can get entitled. So we're in a little uh, enclave of a county. So some of the laws are just a little bit easier, but we're still highly regulated. Absolutely. Those regulations really pushed you to this place, I guess, basically. And this yeah. is the one where they let you do it. Did you have to act as a teacher for the zoning boards also? They probably here in Belmont don't get a lot of applications to open up distilleries. Did you have to kind of let them know, no, here's how it works? Did you really have to know your craft to be able to communicate that to the you, zoning you people, do, to because, the government itself. Because there's environmental issues, there's you know, fire department mm -hmm. issues, there's health issues. You know. So what I find from experience that if you go to regions where this business is developed, if there's other wineries, breweries, like you go to Napa, Sonoma, sure. they do those things all day long, right? They, mm -hmm. they, they know what to do with it, right? Yeah. Here, they don't open a distillery or a winery or brewery every day, mm -hmm. right? So it's one-off. And that's what makes it tough. Yeah. Did you have any consultants to assist you with your TTB paperwork? Or did you just sit down with a stack of paper and a glass of wine or a, <laughs> or a bottle of vodka and just kind of work your way through it? How did you get through all that paperwork? Did you work with the team? No, no, I actually did it myself. Did so, you? Um, okay. One of the reasons why I wanted to do that is because it's highly controlled area. Part of the reason why I wanted to do due diligence on my own is to understand essentially what you're getting yourself into, right? So the best way, especially if you don't know the industry, if you're new to the industry, mm -hmm. uh, relying on somebody else to do paperwork for you, you're not really sure what you're doing, right? So unless you have a permanent consultant or staff that's going to tell you, you can do this, you can do that, right? Sure. I just wanted to go through the process so I learned through it and I understand what are the guidelines and regulations, so we're 100% legit. Yeah, that's a really good point. If there's no better way to teach yourself what they're going to be looking for than to actually sit there and yeah, look at it yourself. With a Bible, yeah. I, I would imagine one of the benefits you get by being in a more urban area is things like city services aren't really a question for you. I assume you get your water from the municipal water supply, your sewage is taken care of. More rural facilities have to really be worried about what's the quality of my well water? How do I handle waste? By being here, I would imagine, is it a little bit easier for you having to worry about water quality and all that? Yeah, we looked into the water, so we get amazing Hetch Hetchy water from the Sierras. So okay. we stay in regular touch with the water department and we look at the reports. So we did full water analysis. So we pay attention to that, but we're fortunate that in California we have great water coming from the Sierras. A little less there's this year because there's no snow. You know? <laughs> we're struggling with water, yeah. unlike our friends in Boston and New York. In New York, we have more than enough water. <laughs> Ship it yeah, over. Yeah. Come send it our way. 
So that in an urban area, that's easier. Of course, there's a lot more regulations from environmental to, mm. you know, so. It's all a balance. It's all a balance, yeah, 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 right. yeah. Well, how do you get the word out about your spirits? You know, you mentioned we're really close to Napa. California is a highly regarded maker of all alcohols, you know, microbreweries, wines, several other distilleries are open here as well. What do you do to get the word out just as you're beginning and your portfolio is just starting to grow? Do you rely a lot on traditional media types? Do you rely on internet, social media? Being a small company, unlike similar to any other startup, right? You have a limited capital for marketing. You can never outspend the big guys. That was a lot of learning. I mean, still learning. In fact, I know a lot less now than I did 10 years ago when we started this. <laughs> But you simply cannot do the billboards and do the big company advertising because you just don't have the capital to do that, right? Competing with companies like Diageo with 16 billion in sales, 60 billion market cap. You know, you're mm-hmm. not going to outspend them on marketing, right? Right. So you have to find sort of guerrilla marketing in more creative ways and more frugal ways to connect to your customers. And as it turns out, marketing is very important. We probably underspent on marketing simply because it was expensive and we're sort of new to the consumer marketing. Sure. Um, But, you know, traditional websites, blogs, traditional social media online equalizes that the delta between the big guys and Mm -hmm. small guys. Absolutely. And then I, I would imagine that kind of competition also bleeds over into the search for a distributor, making sure your product gets noticed. Because unlike in other states here in California, you don't get to self-distribute. You really do need to work with a partner to just get your product in front of your customers and in a place for them to be able to buy your product. What was that search for you like to find the right distributor and to get noticed and then to get your product moved by a distributor? Well, we were fortunate to eventually get a great distributor, but it took three years to really? get to the point and we had to work with a you know, mix of small ones and sure. uh, hand-selling. It was really hard, partially because distributors are, are inundated with products these days. Yeah. So they reluctantly take on new brands because it's a multi-year proposition, right? Essentially, a good distributor will work with you for decades mm-hmm. to build your brand and support it. And it's a lot of growing effort together. So they don't likely take new brands. So I think if people are starting to still learn expecting, oh, I'll just build it and things will sell, they're in for a rude awakening. It simply doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of hard, hard hauling. And to your point, it's a three-tier system. And in California, you cannot sell your product. You cannot distribute your, if you have a full DSP, you cannot distribute it. Mm-hmm. So even if you want to sell it from your trunk and get out there and really meet all your accounts and meet people, you still need that other person. You need that middleman there for you. Yeah, you, you yeah. essentially need a wholesaler, a distributor who sells to an on or off premise to a retailer or a bar, or mm-hmm. sells to a consumer. So I cannot sell a bottle of gin or vodka directly to a consumer here. And that makes it really hard because if you don't have the channel, you're just not selling anything. Right. <laughs> Legally. Legally. Right? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> that makes it inherently hard to start. Get away from all the macro topics we've been talking about, how to get started, how to get distributed, and let's focus on what Old World Spirits is. What do you make here? What are your products that are out on market right now? Essentially, we have two conceptual lines. One is more artisanal, one is more mainstream. So we started originally with artisanal products, which were our Odevis fruit brandies. Like I said, I'm third generation distiller and winemaker. That was yeah. the background. So we distilled, we had fruit, we had fruit trees, and we had grapes. Okay. So you essentially take whatever's there and you ferment it and distill it, right? That, that's <laughs> yeah. that's essentially how it started. Right. So so uh, it's no this big fruit surprise. has sugar. Yeast will eat that. It will create ethanol, and then we can distill. Yeah, <laughs> whatever that is. Hopefully, it's just just one type of yeast. <laughs> right. But, uh, 
So we started with our uh, uh, Kuchin uh, Eau de Vies. We branded out of the family label, the Kuchin. So we had uh, Poir Williams. We had a couple peaches. We developed a relationship with some of the finest growers up in uh, foothills of the Sierras. Oh, okay. It's an area called Apple Hill. I love the mountain fruit because it has a slower growing season because it's on higher elevation. So the fruit tends to develop slower, but it has a much higher sugar content and a higher, better aromas, in my opinion. So we created a couple Eau de Vies. Uh, they're essentially fruit brandies, essentially just a fruit yeast and water. Mm-hmm. You know, one of these little bottles of 375 can be 20, 25 pounds of fruit. No kidding. Yeah. Oh, man. I hope you really like your farmer then because you will be <laughs> relying on him for a lot of product. You know, it was growing up as part of that and meeting some of these farmers was really just a great joy because they're simple people who just love what they do. Yeah. And they struggle. A lot of times they have sort of beef fruit or that they, they lose a contract with a canner and they literally are feeding fruit to the cows. So even helping them have an outlet for that fruit is, yeah. is a great help, even though it's a really hard business because it's very demanding to produce and macerate and, and all that. But you provide a new avenue for them, though, uh, you know, yeah. especially if, if they're a farmer that does fresh pack fruit that's going to be on store shelves. They have right. to throw a lot of stuff out that won't present well. And you don't care what the fruit looks like uh, visually in order to... The ugly fruit is just fine just to Just fine to you, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's what we started. So from a product perspective, that's one. Uh, we also have a black walnut nachina, which is a black walnut liqueur. Hmm. So essentially, we started with our brandy that we produce in-house from Zinfandel grapes. And oh, then wow. we macerate. We get the walnuts from Chico area. They're green walnuts. And then we macerate oh. them for a good amount of time. And then uh, lightly sweetened with organic tapioca. So it's my grandmother's recipe. <laughs> it's been in our family for generations. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sure it's guarded with your life too, right? This is the family recipe. Yeah, we don't. Uh, in fact, I tried to change it a couple of years ago, and uh, I brought it to my uncle, and he tasted it, and he said it's good, but not as good as your grandma used to make it. <laughs> anyway, so I went back to the original recipe. Okay, don't mess with perfection. Don't mess with yeah. perfection. Yeah. <laughs> And then we have the other family product that's on the artisanal side is our absinthe. So Croatia, you know, and and sort of that part of the world, Northern Italy and and Croatia has a lot of experience with wormwood, you know, wormwood uh, or in Croatian, it's called pelin, pelin, P-L-I-N. In fact, we have a liqueur called Pelinkovac is also wormwood based. Oh, interesting. Croatians are not, we're not as worried about the... uh so-called hallucinatory effects of wormwood. No, if you look at, I mean, if you yep. look at, if you look at wormwood, it's a sister plant to cat's claw. The reason why people use certain botanicals is because they had the medicinal qualities, right? Mm-hmm. So when I was a kid, my grandma had a stomach ache, you know, or my stomach was, you know, sour. My, my grandma would give me a little teaspoon of pelinkovac, which is our wormwood liqueur. Oh, okay. And uh, that was sort of calmed things down. So it had sort of antibacterial uh, qualities. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the liqueurs, really today have origin in some kind of a medicinal history. So this is a true pre-ban absent, maximum legal allowable amount of Thujon that we have to send through testing. Oh, okay. So those are the sort of artisanal, the Odovis, the Nocino, and the absent. We have two absents, blue and green. Oh, I'm sorry, how do you make a blue absent? It's the sister product. It's or, also known as Blanche. We call them the Sorcier Bleu. Uh, okay. The blue or the, the Blanche, it's a clear absent, so it doesn't actually go to the secondary maceration of the herbs. Oh, So we changed the mix of the herbs and we put all the herbs before the distillation. So it remains oh, okay. clear. Oh, uh, interesting. But we changed the ratio of some of mm-hmm. the herbs. Great for cocktails. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
Yeah. So those are the artisanal products. And then from a more quote unquote mainstream, our blade gin has been the mainstream gin for us. I'm a huge gin fan and got frustrated with the big industrial gins that are produced in whiskey stills and completely over extracted on a juniper. And I just really wanted to create a California gin. Okay. I want to create something that's like a big fruity pinot, mm-hmm. that version of the gin where it doesn't need to taste like it's all juniper. <laughs> like gin does not have to taste like just juniper berries, which to me anyways, it feels like everyone's kind of making that's yeah, just the same recipe over and over again. They're just trying to mimic the big brands. And if you really like that London dry style, then you're covered. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's a lot of reason why that hasn't been changed in a long time. One is that simply gin has sort of fallen asleep since the 60s, since the absolute became a big vodka brand and vodka took over. But gin has always been a great, exciting spirit for cocktails. Gin is the original flavor of vodka. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It, it yeah. all starts from a base neutral spirit. And yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, so 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 Blade is one, and then uh, we have a barrel-aged version of the Blade, which we pioneered the category. In fact, Rusty Blade was the first label that was approved by TTV for the barrel-aged gin. Not Old Tom, but the actual barrel-aged gin. To actually be able to put on your label, aged, yeah, which was aged a, gin, which is traditionally not allowed. Or would a they, lot would they, of discussions yes. with TTV, <laughs> and uh, we had to change a number of times our labels. And It's called Rusty Blade. And then we have recently released our rye whiskey, which we started a couple years ago. It's 100% white organic rye. Oh, wow. North Dakota. So that's called Gold Run Rye. So that's essentially our portfolio hmm. right now. Some more artisanal, some more quote unquote uh, mainstream, but they're all handmade. Yeah. If you don't mind my asking, doing a barrel aging of gin seems like it would be very difficult to balance the oakiness and just the flavor of the wood and also try to preserve some of the botanicals and all that flavor you try to get in to begin with. Was it a lot of trial and error for you? How did you find just that right balance? What you probably find in your interviews and discussions with producers mm-hmm. that every person has an area where they nerd out. Okay. <laughs> you know, some people nerd out on fermentation, yeah. some people nerd out on industrial process. Mm-hmm. I nerd out on, on oak aging. Oh, really? Uh, that's mine. And it originates from the fact that when I was growing up, you stored everything in oak, right? You ferment in oak because being for farmers, the stainless steel tanks are very expensive. Sure. But Balkan oak or Croatian oak is prevalent there, hmm. which is one of the largest producers of, of oak and barrels, right? Uh, the northern Croatia, southern Hungary, kind of it's oh, yes, the Balkan right. oak. So we, I spent a lot of time around oak, cleaning okay. oak barrels, cleaning <laughs> Clean. fermentation tanks, and sort of always was fascinated by uh-huh. the interaction of the spirits and wine with oak. So you're absolutely right. On barrel aging, something non-standard like gin, mm-hmm. you have a different interaction with the high-proof spirit and sure. uh, botanicals. So there's definitely changes in the botanicals during the aging for mm-hmm. two years. So thank God you had such a background in oak <laughs> and then kind of knew how it would work. Did you ever get any flashbacks to when you were being told to, you know, go clean out that oak barrel? Now here you are, you've worked in tech, you're older, you, you run your own company. <laughs> oh God, and you're back working in oak barrels. Back like in the, the oak barrels, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're big and heavy and they're messy. And, yeah. Uh, it's fascinating, right? And as you get older, you, you learn to appreciate the changes that happen, right? And, and a lot of people try to accelerate aging of the spirits. Right. Um, you know, there's a whole industry trying to accelerate and we have some a five-year uh, aged bourbon in 15 minutes using my crafted process you, you know that would be great you but hear a lot of that and I, I think that's still a holy grail right how do right. you create a really aged sort of like a story of life how can you get experience of a you know 40 year old mm-hmm. at the age of 16 be nice sure. but it takes time it takes time yep <laughs> good, good things take time so i'm fascinated at some of the changes you know when you're learning how to produce to answer your question it's sort of a scary thing because when you put 50-something gallons at high-proof spirit in a barrel yeah. and you have to wait for two years till you figure, you know, it's it's, mm-hmm. it's very expensive for a small producer to mess up on 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and that barrel is taking up valuable square footage space for the next two years, and you hope when you open it up, I hope I can put this in a bottle and sell yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, There's a bit of an investment in what there. What have I made? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so kind of in that spirit, what kind of input do you seek when you're working on a recipe to make sure you're making something that someone else is going to want to buy and it's not just going to be 3,000 gallons of liquid that only that's a, Devoren that's a, wants to that, drink. That, you, know, you know, that's a really good question, Zach. I actually don't. I create what I envision. We all have a different chemistry of the mouth. We all have different tastes depending on the time of the year and how you feel and what temperature is outside and what you've eaten. Different things are going to be more pleasurable. In the summertime, you have some fish or chicken and maybe Sauvignon Blanc, uh, Mm. light and fruity and grapefruit, green apple, tastes better. Maybe in fall where you're having some roasted duck or something, maybe a nice oaky big Chardonnay is going to taste better, right? Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult to please everybody all the time. So what I do is I just visualize these flavors differently. To me, they evoke, you know, for example, our rye. It's about my experience from growing up at my grandmother's house and we had rye fields as well. So I would wake up in the morning, she would make fresh rye bread and it didn't taste like the commercial rye from LDI or whoever was producing bulk stuff these days. But it was a little bit of a spice, but it was a sweet caramel, golden meadows, honey, floral. And that's kind of what I woke up at, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I try to recreate some of these things from my childhood and from my experiences. And I create them the way I do. In fact, a good friend, David from KNL, he's been a great supporter and a friend of the distillery for a number of years. He likes to say that every one of my products has Davern's thumbprint on Mm -hmm. it. But I think that's like that with anything else, whether you hear a musician that plays different songs or whether you're a chef that creates dishes, right. it's sort of your thumbprint on it. So they're like my children, you know, mm-hmm. I create the products the way they are and people like them great. They don't, they don't, you know, and that's just who they are. They're unique, they're different. And I don't try to recreate large brands. Right. That's not the point. If you want to have a Bombay, get a that already exists, yeah, right? Already yeah. there. There's Enjoy plenty it. of it. Yeah. Right. I guess that's a good point. You entered this because you really thought you could do it very well and you have a history in it and on some level, you seem to trust yourself, right? Believe that what you're doing is going to be the right thing. And you do know how to make a very high quality spirit that the market will respond to. I'm sure you do have to worry about the too many chefs in the kitchen kind of a problem. Too many people with too many inputs. Yeah. And are you, are you kind of losing the original thing that made you get started to begin with? Yeah, democracy doesn't really work in that case. I mean, people can give their input, but think more like a benevolent dictatorship. Okay. You know, I look at it sort of as artist. When you have a Picasso or a Monet, you know, they just did what they thought mm-hmm. was special and let the market figure out. I find that consumers will, they're smart. No amount of marketing will dissuade them. They either like it and they can enjoy it or they don't. So Absolutely. So we've been fortunate that they do. So. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your bottle design. How did you come up with the shape of your bottles? Did you go with a um, custom mold, for example? Or since you were just getting started, did you kind of just look to see what glass manufacturers already had available in their portfolio? Similar to the wines, right? There's some tradition. So, for example, the OW bottles are these long, elongated, tall 375 bottles. And I guess... Technically, any container is, is a container, right? But, you know, people like to associate certain look and feel with the product. Mm-hmm. So you can get creative up to a point, especially if you're just launching a brand. Having too many degrees of freedom is challenging, right? Because you're introducing people to potentially new flavor, to new taste, new approach to the spirit. And having some more traditional looking bottles that fit the category mm-hmm. uh, makes it easier for people to approach they, because they can look at it they go, okay, this looks like a gin or this looks like an eau de vie or, you know. Okay. So that's one. And th- there is just a pure business aspect of it. The bottles, they're more traditional. They're sort of mass produced or cheaper. Sure. You didn't have to buy 6,000 cases of your own unique bottle. 
Hope you like it. Yeah, yeah it's usually <laughs> because, a 20 or 40 foot container right. and uh, large startup fees and all that. And you're still testing the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing is like one of our Epson bottles is sort of in this tapered bottle, as you can, I'm showing this to you, you know. Sure. And so and we'll have an image of it up on our website. As yeah. Well. My daughter did the design and we could talk about it. But for example, having a tapered bottle makes it very difficult for traditional labeling equipment, right? Okay. Because tapered bottles don't, it sort of makes it difficult to apply the labels. You know? mm-hmm. So those are all the lessons learned. So the more creative you get, it gets more expensive and gets more complicated. Complicated. Sure. Uh, you have to stock m- multiple bottles, multiple SKUs, custom order. Now you're running into a big, and when you don't have a lot of space to store all these different kinds yeah, of bottles, yeah. and just the logistics of running all of that, I imagine. I mean, you may have to buy 10, 20,000 bottles mm-hmm. up front. Um, <laughs> It's a lot of bottles. You got to store keep it. around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got to keep around. And there's really aren't making any money <laughs> or anything. You know, they're just sitting there. Yeah. So let's talk about your label design a little bit. Did you work with a professional label designer? I designed all the labels. Did you really? Yeah. Oh wow. And to me, that's a part of the creation. Every label is um, I designed it. As I told you before, well, I actually stole the design. My old daughter is a budding artist, and she's, <laughs> she's super talented. And yeah, she was. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how old she was. I'm trying to look at the picture. I actually snapped a shot of her. <laughs> Taking a picture, she was maybe 11, 12. Oh, she wow. was doodling. It was her little drawing folder, and she was doodling this little forest fairy. Mm-hmm. And I came into her room, and I said, what are you doing? And right at the time, I was working on a concept for the absent design. and Sure. And everything was sort of, I was looking at all the impressionists, and, and everything was kind of foo-foo and pretentious. And I'm like, I, that's not what I want. Right. And I walk into her room and she's drawing this little fairy and just the, the lights are going off. You know, the that's bells it. are ringing. <laughs> from, the imi- from the imagination of a 12-year-old. That's uh, Yeah. And yeah. So, so it sort of has this sort of a, a like naivete of, of a young girl holding this little chalice above her head in the forest fairy between Very the leaves. Cool. And uh, so I said, you know, how much more personal does this get, right? Right. Every design has sort of a feel of the... And I didn't want to outsource that because to me that, that creativity is part of mm-hmm. the personality of the product. Sure. Um, so to me, if you take that creativity away, you sort of take a huge part of the creation. Mm-hmm. What's amazing to me is that just how much of every single element that's in these bottles really is personal to you. This whole distillery seems to be your creative output. This is all Absolutely. you every yeah. step of the way yeah. in this product. As it is with any other artist or creator, right? Whether it's a chef or a musician or a painter, it's really who you are. And I think that gets lost in a big industrial world. They're not just brands and expressions. I personally don't look at it that way. Every one of these has a history. Evokes some part of my experience, my history, my thought process, my imagination, my family, friends, places I lived. So to me, that's the key thing that I try to convey to our customers when you ask me how do you get to it. You know, right. it's telling that story because otherwise it's just booze, just booze. Otherwise, yeah, yeah. And, and, and especially in the craft world, people want to connect to something. You have to convince them to not go with a big brand. Why should I give you a try? You know, I've never tried your brand, and I know I really like large brand X. What is that other extra thing you're giving me to really convince me to give well, it a you know, Well, you know, Zach, that's really hard, right? Because right. large companies spend millions and millions of dollars to try to paint this. That's true. Whether it's Johnny Walker or Captain Morgan, these fictional characters, they try to create this lifestyle, right? Yeah. Which, you know, we inherently have. The history is here. It's real, right? They have to make it. And they have to spend, they have brand ambassadors and spend a lot of money on advertising and smoke and mirrors, you know? Sure. It's handmade in small stills, and yet there's a factory size of a <laughs> yeah. Valero oil refinery in right. Benicia, you know, that's cranking stuff up. Mm-hmm. So that, there's a lot of hands that touch all the buttons to make the automated process run. So. Yeah, I mean, there's, right. I think you can go on Modern Marvels and look at the Bacardi distillery, mm-hmm. you know, that they're doing. And they're openly like saying, this is just massive industrial thing sure. that makes your. And granted, they make some good stuff, but. They have to work very hard to create a story. Our story is here. We started mm-hmm. with the story. So <laughs> the products are the expression of that story. Very cool. 
now that you're up and running, you have products out on market, distributed, developing even more things. Looking back, what do you wish you can go back in time and tell yourself right before getting started? What do you wish you had known then that you've learned now? If you could just pass on one word of wisdom. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> or two. Is there one thing you were like, oh man, you really need to know this <laughs> before getting started? Well, one thing, it's going to take a lot longer and you need a lot more capital. This is not for the faint of heart because it's very regulated. And the fact that you are heavily reliant on the system Mm -hmm. It makes it very hard. Once you're established and people recognize your brand, it's easier. But to get started is just really hard and takes a long time. So you better be prepared to be very well capitalized and have a mm -hmm. lot of reserves. I have two brothers-in-law who have wineries, you know, okay. and they told me they're, it's over a million dollars to put in. And I'm like, yeah, right. Come you know, on. Uh, how much is it still? That's, you know, but absolutely. I mean, they were you right. Should, you should be able to put a million, million and a half in, mm -hmm. you know, and the word on the street right now is it takes uh, 10 to 15 years for a small distillery to become profitable. Wow. So I just have a business plan that ends at year three, <laughs> and then we take off from there. It's uh, uh yeah. There's a yeah. hockey stick. There's a stick curve there. The, yeah, not quite. Not quite. <laughs> not quite. Right. But um, also, don't lose heart after year one necessarily, as long as you you're, don't just be prepared. Right. right. Just be prepared that it's mm -hmm. going to be a long, long haul. So now that you're on the production side and you make spirits, has it changed the way you go out to bars or restaurants or liquor stores? Do you go out and look behind the bar and see if you're there? Or wonder why you're not there. Or all, the, you, all the time. Yeah. All the time. In fact, it uh, becomes really hard to go have a dinner somewhere and uh, mm -hmm. have a drink because you just go, what's up there? What's not? Yeah. And then you can tell which uh, distributor has got their way in and which one is not covering the account. And, oh, wow. Uh, there's a lot of gaming. But yeah, you, you sort of take it personally. But there's a flip side of that, right? You go somewhere and you see your products and you go, wow, that's pretty cool. Huh. You know, like, yeah, yeah it's, you know, we're in some ways, you know. Or you go to a local retailer and you see your bottle that we have number every bottle and so you go yeah you know, I'll put the shrimp crab on that bottle so it, it's special it's sort of like seeing your children kind of in the in, in sure. the world or you know friends come and say hey we just had a bottle over we made some basil gimlets with your blade and people had a great time and thank you for making you know mm -hmm. so those things sort of warm up your heart and you go gosh I, it's bigger than me you create something right. that makes a wedding reception better or makes a great celebration better or a nice barbecue with friends and family and you go you in some way touch people beyond your everyday life and that's that's special, right? People mm -hmm. send you notes and they send you pictures that you know, so that's great. <laughs> yeah, well, something you've made is really touched. That that is incredible. Yeah. Well, kind of my final question. Someone goes out and they buy a bottle of blade or gold run rye. Is there one recipe that you would recommend for them? How do they how can they go home and really enjoy that? How do you like to mix your cocktails? Could you share one recipe with people? Yeah, so thank you for asking that because one of my guiding philosophies is that the spirits that I create they have to be great on their own. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you look at on every bottle, there is a motto, good stuff needs no special effects, <laughs> which we actually trademarked. Amazing. And uh, this is sort of my, uh, in fact, it's on a shrink wrap as well, right? Oh my gosh, okay. So it's philosophy behind everything we do. If you think about why cocktails really became, is because the original spirits during the Prohibition era Right, uh, were sort of crappy, right? They were, right. were bathtub. It was the gin. best they could do in a field in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, and the reason why cocktails really became is because you were masking the inferior flavors, right? Sure. That's how it originally started. So I wanted every one of the products to be essentially be a symphony of, of flavors and, and on its own. 
Okay. Right? At the same time, it's a difference between having a solo performer versus somebody who is not that good at playing instrument but needs to play in a band uh, mm-hmm. that kind of comes together. So I wanted to create both. So okay. I wanted to, for example, Blade be straight up with a chilled on ice with a twist of lemon or orange. Mm-hmm. Uh, makes it great. Or something as simple as just a gin and tonic because the Blade, for example, is lighter, it's more fruitier. We tone down juniper, we have a completely different way of extracting juniper. So it's more floral, less heavy, goopy. Okay, you know? And that's one of the reasons why, for, for example, Blade has been very well accepted among the, we have some crazy talented mixologists in San Francisco and, and in California. They're doing some amazing things with Blade because it's versatile, right? All the flavors are sort of balanced. So if you want to go more savory mm-hmm. uh, in a cocktail, it, it works with that. If you want to go more fruity, it works with that. So honestly, just something simple at the gin and tonic or one of my favorites is, is something called a, a blade basil gimlet. It's essentially oh, okay. you take a fresh basil, you mash it down. In fact, you can go on, online and we share our recipes for oh, that. Oh, cool. But it just makes a great summer. It's sort of a twist on the, on the mojito. Okay, very um, cool. So basil gimlet is a great cocktail. And uh, also just doing a mojito, but don't use rum, use blade. Really? Uh, that's interesting. So a couple of our local bars have been doing this and they're, they're having just a huge, because it gives, it gives a, not the heavier, it's a lighter okay. feel to, to the mojito. Sure. So just do mojito instead of just substitute mm. blades for, for rum. Very cool. And just to kind of reiterate, first experience with your spirits, don't be afraid to just put it on ice and give it a sip because that's that's how you, it, it's strong, it's good enough to stand on its own first. It, it should. Yeah. And yeah. I, I really believe that, you know, nice looking car doesn't need <laughs> a spoilers and spinners. Good steak doesn't, yep. just need salt and pepper, no sauces. Right on. And that's sort of the philosophy, right? Good things should, in life should be, it's just the simplicity of things, mm-hmm. you know? Few ingredients, few things, they're just amazing on their own. So that's sort of philosophy behind it. That's why I put it on a label. Very insurance. cool. Well, Devorn, where can people find your product? What's your website? Can they find out where you're being distributed, where you're being sold in there? Our website is uh, going back to the small company marketing where it's grossly out of date uh, <laughs> because my webmaster was my sister in law who okay. became pregnant with three kids and got very busy. Oh. But we're in the process of redoing our website. Yeah, okay. <laughs> gotcha. So we're distributed mostly throughout California. We have reached a couple other states, but we're really focusing right now on California and a number of our retailers ship to other states. So we're in the Bay Area. Places like KNL and Cask in San Francisco, a lot of the small, we love small uh, local stores. Okay. You know, just because they're passionate about what they do, they're not big corporate, they're reasonable with their margins, and so mm-hmm. they provide a good value at a good, you know, our products at a, at a fair price to, to people and, and they can educate them. But you can also find it at, you know, Bevmo, Total Wines, Whole Foods, some of the okay. larger chains who have been, uh, who are really reaching more toward the mm-hmm. artisanal products. Very cool. Well, Devorn, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing the story of Old World Spirits with us. Thank you, Zach, for allowing us to share the story, and I hope your listeners will have a chance to try our spirits and support us. Thank you.